Well, it is a privilege to turn to God's Word. Join me in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, this past week I finished the last bit of study I needed to for the Gospel of John, finished chapter 21 in my study, so we are going to be bringing this book to a close in the next few months. But John chapter 20, we are finding ourselves in verses 19 through 23 this morning, John 20, 19 through 23, where John is moving his story of Jesus' resurrection from a joyful Mary in verse 18, who just saw Jesus outside the empty tomb earlier in the morning. She's unafraid to announce that Jesus lives. That's how verse 18 ends. Mary came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She's unafraid. She's bold. But when we move into verses 19 through 23, the scene shifts. We now come to a locked room later that evening where Jesus' apostles have hidden themselves, afraid that they might meet the same fate as Jesus. You have a bold Mary. You have apostles who are cowards. And yet the passage, though it begins with overwhelming fear, the passage actually ends in faith, as cowardice gives way to courage, assurance, replaces apprehension. Let's read the text set in our minds, begin in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. You can stop there. This is a passage about why believers can be fearless in a world that not only hates Christ, but also hates all who are Christ's. It's a passage why we today do not need to lock ourselves away in the safety of our own Christian circles, our own locked doors, rooms. That we can be courageous, specifically courageous to proclaim Christ's gospel, knowing that this will, you can mark that down, it will be met with opposition. Verse 19 sets the stage for the transformation that will take place with these apostles moving from fear to faith. It begins in verse 19. So when it was evening that day, the first day of the week, and this is just an understatement. Understand the magnitude here. This is no ordinary day. 
This is Sunday after Jesus' death. This is the day that all redemptive history had pointed to. This is the day when God finally defeated death and defeated death for all of his children. And understand there's much that has taken place in the 12 hours or so in that white space between verses 18 and 19. In Matthew 28, we are told that Jesus once again appeared to Mary for a second time. This time it was also to an entire group of women with Mary. as They were leaving the empty tomb to tell the apostles that Christ had risen. In Luke 24, we are told that Jesus appeared to two disciples leaving Jerusalem. They had believed that Jesus was the Christ, but their faith was shaken They were confused why the promised Messiah had been rejected by the chief priests, why the Roman guards crucified this man. And then they hear about the empty tomb. They're unsure what happened. In Luke 24, we are told that the resurrected Jesus also appeared to Peter privately, a special appearance to the one who had denied him three times. And so at this point, when verse 19 opens, there have been two angelic announcements of Jesus' resurrection, four resurrection appearances, and multiple reports to the apostles that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. And yet, what do we see in verse 19? We do not see apostles rejoicing that Jesus has risen. It's been reported to them, but that's not what we see. There's no joy in this moment. Instead, we see them filled with fear. Verse 19, this is why the doors were shut. And shut here means more than just closed. This means locked, locked tight. And notice that the doors, plural, these are at least two doors. You have the front door, being locked with a heavy bolt slid through an iron ring. And then you have the inner door of the room where they're at. That's also locked. They're securing themselves. This is their safe room. They're fortifying themselves. Why? Because they are afraid for fear of the Jews. They are terrified at this moment. They think a security detachment could barge in at any time and haul them away. And logically, this makes sense. Because back in Matthew 28, we are told that earlier in the day, the chief priests had begun to spread a lie about these men. The lie is that they stole Jesus' body. Listen to Matthew 28. Some of the guard had been positioned outside of the tomb, came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. They report the earthquake, the angel, the stone being removed, the empty tomb. And when they, the chief priests, had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. The apostles are the patsies, the fall guys. And if this should come to the governor's ears, 
And by the way, that's a problem for the apostles if this comes to the governor's ears. We will win him over and keep you out of trouble. We'll keep you from Pilate's wrath. We'll perpetuate the lie. Again, that spells death for the apostles. Verse 15, and so to save themselves, they took the money and did as they had been instructed. That's the rumor now spreading throughout Jerusalem. But not only is is this causing them fear, the apostles are also afraid because of what Jesus promised back in John 15. Just a few days earlier, John 15, if you were of the world, this is the warning, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. The problem is you're not of the world, men, because I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. And then to prove the point, Jesus offers this principle. Remember, a slave is not greater than his master. That's the axiom. What happens to the master will happen to the follower. And thus, application, if they persecuted me, which they did in the most horrific of ways, they will also persecute you. If they lied about me, they'll lie about you. They found someone to betray me, they'll find someone to betray you. If they arrested me, they'll arrest you. If they executed me, they'll execute you. It's the axiom. And to make matters worse for these men, they were with Jesus when he was arrested. The chief priests know their faces. They know what Peter tried to do, tried to kill someone. The apostles know the only reason they were able to escape that night was because Jesus drew on his divine authority. He commanded the soldiers to let them go. But here's the problem. Jesus is not here now. Where's our hope? And so the logical deduction is that they're next. They are next. His fate will soon be their fate. In fact, that may be one reason why Thomas isn't in the room with them. One commentator put it this way, the reality of the resurrection has still to emerge among the disciple group with any degree of conviction. Hence, the locked doors and the continuing fear for their skins. So let's put it this way. The apostles have yet to apply what the resurrection means for them. They have yet to grasp all the implications of Jesus' resurrection for them personally. And if we want to make this for us today, this is true for all of us. Every time we cower before the world in our testimony for Christ, every time we lock ourselves in our own rooms, whatever that looks like, it is because just like the apostles it is because we have forgotten what Jesus' resurrection means for us, personally, as God's children. And we have forgotten the eternal security that Jesus' resurrection guarantees. That's what's going on with the apostles. 
But finish verse 19, all of that changes, all of that changes, massive transition when Jesus came and stood in their midst. Here's the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrected body. It's a physical body. It can be touched. Uh, he can eat. But it's also massively different than our bodies now. It can appear at will. It's not confined by human limitations. Just like the locked tomb couldn't keep Jesus in, these locked doors can't keep Jesus out. And so Jesus stood. He's not floating. This is not some ethereal spirit. This is a physical resurrection from the dead, and he stands in their midst. This is like what God would do, a pre-incarnate Jesus back in the Old Testament, not bound by natural law, but appears to God's people. And Jesus' purpose is clear. He has come to replace his apostles' fear with an unshakable faith and a gospel boldness. Again, make it applicable for us. This is what we need today. We need that unshakable fear and gospel boldness. This is why Jesus' first word is peace. Peace be with you. Peace. It's a normal Hebrew greeting. It's more than that, though. This is not just a normal hello, men. Look at verse 21. Jesus repeats this. Peace be with you. Christ is bringing his apostles back to what he promised them and offered them late Thursday night. He's bringing them back to John 14. Peace, I leave with you. Men, before I go to the cross, I'm offering you my calmness, my peace, my peace I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. No matter what you see transpire, no matter how bad it looks, do not be fearful. But now three days later, what do we see? We see these men and their hearts being troubled. They've been overcome with fear. They're locking themselves away. You'd expect Jesus to come and rebuke them. It's not what he does. Instead, he offers them peace. He goes further, actually. He promises them peace. Peace be with you. I'm giving you my peace. One theologian defines peace this way. A state of being that has no fear of being troubled in its tranquility. It is euphoria coupled with security. That is exactly what these men need. This is exactly what we need today. It's exactly what these men will have later when the book of Acts opens. So there's a massive transition that takes place from fear to faith. The question is this, how did Jesus give them this tranquility of heart? How did he move his apostles from cowering in a locked room to soon proclaiming his gospel with a euphoria coupled with security. How will they soon preach Christ to the very ones who crucified Christ, 
who also want to kill them. How does Jesus do this? How does the transition take place? Again, let's make the question personal for us today. How do we, how do we move from our own gospel cowardice? And if we are honest, we all have experienced gospel fear, right? If we're honest. Certainly it looks different from person to person. But we know what gospel cowardice looks like in our own life. We know what it feels like when fear begins to well up inside of us. How do we move from that gospel cowardice to gospel courage? How do we move from fearing man to speak about Christ and speak about Christ with boldness and clarity? How do we do this knowing that the promise of John 15 for worldly hatred is still in force? How does that transition take place for each and every one of us? Here's the answer. We will embrace, we will embrace courage. We will move from gospel fear when we believe three promises Jesus gives his apostles and us in verses 20 through 23. Each of these promises stem from Jesus' own resurrection. These are the promises we need to grasp and cling to. Begin with promise number one. Promise number one, we will be freed from gospel fear when we grasp that Jesus' resurrection will one day be our resurrection. When Jesus' resurrection will one day be our resurrection. And we sang it earlier, one with himself I cannot die. So we've already sung it, we proclaimed it, his resurrection is our resurrection. Develop this, notice what Jesus does in verse 20. After promising the apostles peace, he showed them both his hands and his side. Here's unmistakable proof that the one who now stands before them is the one who died on the cross. This is no phantom, no ghost, no hallucination. This is the same Jesus. The same Jesus who had nails driven through his hands back in John 19, 18. The word hand here refers to either the hand itself, the wrist, or the forearm. That's the Jesus who now stands inside these locked doors. Let's play the skeptic for a moment. Simply by showing these nail holes, that doesn't prove that this is necessarily Jesus. Again, just playing the skeptic. This could have been any of those criminals crucified on that Friday. They were all nailed to a cross. This is why Jesus also showed his apostles, verse 20, his side. So this now separates Jesus from the others. This is referring to what took place in verse 34. You remember that. When the other victim's legs were broken to speed up the dying process, Jesus' legs were spared. Why? He was already dead. He gave up his life. No one takes my life. I give it up. So instead of breaking legs, the Roman guard, for whatever reason, spears Jesus in the side. Absolutely necessary. Look at verse 
37, 1937, necessary because that's what was prophesied. It's because Jesus, when he returns, will be seen as the one whom they pierced when he returns to take his throne. Zechariah 12, 10. So here's the paradox, the very symbols of Jesus' death unique only to him. The very symbols of his death are actually the very evidence of Jesus' victory and triumph, not over just the cross and the grave, but also the world. Yes, I was crucified. I have the nail holes, but I was also speared. I am the pierced God who will one day take a throne. This is the king. And this is why, at least in part, the sight of these healed scars sparks joy within the heart of these men. Look at verse 20. The disciples then, this is immediate now, sudden they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Luke adds, they could not believe it because of their joy. It's too good to be true. And the joy that these men were experiencing is exactly what Jesus promised them back in John 16. Remember this promise, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. That's what they've done. You will weep and lament. All hope will seem lost. But the world will rejoice. That's what the religious leaders did. They've rid themselves of this messianic imposter. But now here's the promise, here's the transition. Your grief will be turned into joy. How? Because verse 22, I will see you again. I will rise and I will appear to you and your heart will rejoice. And watch this, amazing. And no one will take your joy away from you. This is supernatural joy. So at this point, the apostles are beginning to understand not just the fact of Jesus' resurrection, but now the implications of Jesus' resurrection. This is moving them from fear to faith. And these implications are instilling in them joy, supernatural joy. Now, what is one of those implications that they are beginning to realize is one of these implications as the resurrected Jesus stands before them. What does it mean for them? It means not only that Jesus defeated death for himself, but the fact that he stands before them means that he has also defeated death for them. That's the implication. Make it personal, he has defeated death for us. This is what Jesus has promised. This is the connection that he has made throughout his ministry. Think of John 5. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the son's voice, the resurrected Christ's voice, and will come forth. Those who did good deeds, those who responded to Christ, those who are his, responded to Christ in saving faith. Though they die and though they will be buried, they will hear his voice and they will come to a resurrection of life. 
His resurrection means our resurrection. It's what Jesus promised in John 11. I, I am the resurrection and the life. I'll be the first to rise again from the dead, never to die again. I'm the first fruits of resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. So here's the question. What's the application? What's the implication for us? Here it is. He who believes in me will what? Will live. His resurrection is our resurrection. He will live even if he dies. And then Jesus asks this question. Do you believe this? That's the question the apostles needed to answer. Do you believe that? It's a question we need to answer. Do we believe that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection? Think of the promise Jesus made to his apostles in John 14. He says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me. Again, I will die. He's upfront about it. I will die. I'll be sent to a tomb, locked behind a stone. You'll no longer see me. But you will see me again. I will resurrect from the dead. I'll appear to you. You'll see me. And then here's the application. Here's the connection. Because I live, you will what? You will live also. Men, it is true, the world hates you. And the world might take your life. They took his life. They might take your life. But understand, my death, Jesus says, means your life. Because I will defeat death. Because I live, you will also live. Again, the question is this. Do you believe this? Not just the apostles. Do we believe this? And Christ is just not making this up. This is what the Old Testament taught. Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. What's the implication? I know that my Redeemer lives. Implication is this. Even after my skin is destroyed, even after I return to the dust in death, yet from my flesh I shall see God. My Redeemer's life means my resurrected life. Think back to those messianic promises we've looked at over the last few weeks. Psalm 16, because the Messiah will, be not, will not be left in the grave, we will not be left in the grave. Think of Isaiah 53. It is true, Christ will be cut off from the land of the living. But he will be lifted up. He will be resurrected. And then here's the implication. He will see his offspring He's resurrected and everyone else who's resurrected to be with him. He'll see them. If we are going to move from fear to faith, if we are going to move from gospel cowardice to gospel courage, we must first and foremost be freed from our fear of death. It's all the world can do to us. And yet absent from the body is what? present with the Lord. Do we believe that? And do we believe resurrection's coming? We must be convinced that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection and live in light of that. That changes everything, doesn't it? 
And we can be sure that we will be resurrected because Christ confirmed his resurrection through his nail scars and speared side. Do we believe it? Promise number two. Promise number two, we will be freed from gospel fear when we grasp that the Holy Spirit is ours forever. That the Holy Spirit is ours forever. Look at verse 21. So Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. You have to ask the question, why does Jesus repeat the promise of peace? Why does he repeat it? He just said it. Here's why. Because what Jesus is about to say could paralyze these men in fear. Here's the commission he gives them. As the Father sent me, I also send you. That is paralyzing. It could be. As the Father sent me, I also send you. This is John's version of the Great Commission. This is our calling calling filled with dignity and honor. Christ's mission is our mission. We're not dying for sinners, certainly, but we're proclaiming the death of Christ. His mission is our mission. No greater calling could be given to us. No greater responsibility. J.C. Ryle is right. No higher honor can be imagined than that of being Christ's ambassadors and proclaiming in Christ's name the forgiveness of sins to a lost world. There's dignity and there's honor. But with this honor comes the possibility of paralyzing fear because of where Jesus is sending us. Go back to John 17. Jesus said, as you, Father, sent me into the world, I send them into the world. sending us into this evil world system. It's a world controlled by Satan and his demons. He's sending us into the same world that rejected Christ and hates Jesus. Notice the parallel Jesus is making here. Just as he was sent from the glories of heaven, uh, call it the safety of heaven, He sent from heaven to the sinful world, so too are we. We are sent from the safety of our homes. The apostles here are being sent from the safety of their locked room. And they are being sent into a a world spiraling deeper, into deeper and greater depravity. We're being sent into the same world that didn't think twice about killing Jesus and won't think twice about killing Jesus' people. So let's not water it down. We're, we're sent into the world, the evil world system. It goes back to what Jesus promised. The slave is not greater than his master. The father has sent me. They did this to me. I'm sending you. They'll do to you what they did to me. This could paralyze us. Which is why Jesus continues into verse 22 when he said this. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we could never fulfill this gospel calling. 
Without the Holy Spirit, dead sinners could never be raised to life. Without the Holy Spirit, we could never remain calm as we infiltrate Satan's domain of lies and unbelief. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. But with the Holy Spirit, all of that changes. With the Holy Spirit, we need not fear anything or anyone, even the very ruler of this world. And this is the spirit he promises to the apostles. This is the spirit Christ gives to each of his people. If you are Christ, you have this spirit. You've received this promise. Understand redemptive history. Jesus at this moment was not giving his apostles the spirit. This is a promise of something coming. He will send the Spirit in Acts 2, 50 days later, after he ascends to the Father. He's bringing the apostles' minds back to what he promised in John 14. Once I ascend, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. I'm picturing that. I'm showing you that will take, I haven't forgotten it. But right now in this room, it's not the time for the Spirit to come. But Jesus knows the apostles' fears. He knows what they will soon face. He knows they need to leave the locked room. And so in a very picturesque way, he reminds them of this promise. The Spirit is coming for you. And I love the picture. He breathed on them has been added. He breathed. He, he does what we see Yahweh God do in Genesis chapter 2. When God breathed the breath of life into his creation, Christ is reminding them of who he is. I am God in human flesh. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to promise this for you. It brings them back to what he promised at the end of John 15. I will send to you from the Father the spirit of truth. I will send that. I'm sending it to you. It's what happens in Acts 2. Again, it's what happens to every believer the moment we are saved. We are given the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' words, forever. Let's bring application. Why should this promise remove any fear we might have as we are sent into Satan's domain? How does this calm us? because it is the Spirit who seals our souls forever. It's Ephesians 1. Because of the Spirit, the world cannot touch our soul. Our eternity is secure. That's the promise. We can be calm being sent on this mission as the Father sends me, I send you. We can be calm because we know that it is the Spirit who indwells us, who's also at work, when we proclaim the gospel, it is the Spirit who takes our words about Christ and gives new life to the dead sinner. It is the Spirit who gives life, John 6. We do not need our hearts to be troubled because it is the Spirit who uses our gospel testimony to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. 
We can be calm because it's the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. He intercedes for us. When we don't know what's happening around us, we don't know where to turn. Romans 8, the Spirit is praying for us. And I love this. It is the Spirit who gives us words to speak. When persecution is just too much, so we think. What did Jesus promise in Mark 13? When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Have peace. Do not let your heart be troubled. But say whatever is given you in that hour. Why? For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will bring to your mind and to your lips the gospel that you believe. The question always is asked when we're thinking about persecution, the question is always asked, will we remain faithful when persecution comes to us? Answer, yes. Why? Because the Spirit will bring to mind the gospel you believe. Why should these apostles, why should we not be paralyzed by fear in a world that hates Christ and hates Christ's people? Answer, because the Holy Spirit is ours forever and there is nothing and no one to fear. We have God himself. Which leads into promise number three. Promise number three, we will be freed from gospel fear when we grasp that Jesus' gospel is the only gospel that saves. When we grasp that Jesus' gospel is the only gospel that saves. That's the promise in verse 23. Notice, if you forgive the sins of any, and note here, Jesus is not talking about the apostles possessing the authority to pronounce forgiveness. That's a prerogative of God alone. What Jesus is talking about is the responsibility the apostles have, the responsibility each of us have to proclaim his gospel of forgiveness. And when we proclaim that message and the sinner responds in faith and repentance, when the Spirit has worked, the promise is this, their sins have been forgiven. Forgiveness is the sinner's greatest need. The sinner's greatest need is not more purpose in their life. It's not more self-esteem. It's not more self-love. The greatest need the sinner has is to be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. That's what Christ's gospel provides and does. But notice, Christ is sending us into the world. Why? Because this message of forgiveness must be proclaimed. It must be spoken. Yes, the Father grants forgiveness, but he only grants it to those who respond to his gospel. And notice the any here. If you forgive the sins of any, Christ's gospel is for any and all sinners. Don't be stingy about the gospel. Don't say, well, I think that person's just too far removed. I'm not going to give them the gospel. 
Why must we not be paralyzed by fear? Why can we not remain in the safety of our locked rooms? Answer, because without the proclamation of the gospel, listen, there is no hope. It is so easy for us just to simply bemoan where the world is heading, isn't it? Anyone do that this week? Once? A hundred times? It's so easy to complain about where the world's heading. Here's my question to you. Have you proclaimed the gospel? It's the only hope. This is why Jesus ends verse 23 with these words. If you retain the sins of any, if this gospel is not proclaimed, if the gospel is not heard, if the sinner does not respond to Christ in saving faith, and watch, they, the unbeliever's sins, have been retained. There's no salvation. The unbeliever remains in his sins, separated from God, and only the wrath of God awaits him. Here's the application. If we have been entrusted with the only gospel that saves, if we have been sent into this world with the only gospel that frees people from their sins and delivers them from God's wrath, then how can we remain silent? How can we stay in our locked rooms? The apostles couldn't. Here's the transition. It's massive. The apostles couldn't stay behind these locked doors. Now, it'll take a little while for them to realize that. The next passage, they'll, again, a week later, be in the locked room. But fast forward to the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, what do we see? We see the apostles proclaiming the gospel of Christ to the very ones who crucified Jesus. Like the apostles, we must learn from Christ's promises here. We must not remain silent. Why? Because Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Death holds no power over us. We must not remain silent because the spirit is ours forever and the world can't touch our soul. We must not remain silent because Christ's gospel is the only gospel that saves and who else is going to proclaim it? And when we grasp these promises from our resurrected Lord, our faith will be turned to faith. And whatever gospel cowardice we might have, that will become gospel courage. Mark it down. We know it to be true, don't we? If we truly live with the understanding that we will rise from the dead, does that change anything about you? We know this to be true. And yet in faith, we must cling to these promises. We must cling to them, apply them, and live them. Father, I pray that we would do that. That we would just not hear about the resurrected Jesus. But that would affect us. There would be changes that we make in our lives. 
that you would replace fear with faith, that each of us would be courageous to speak about our Savior. Lord, it is possible because your Spirit indwells us and sanctifies us. And so we pray for you, Holy Spirit, to do this work within our lives. And we showcase the reality of what we've just heard. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.